Hello there. A wee note on today's episode of Big Feels at Work. Today we're talking about one of the scarier parts of the Big Feelings spectrum, having thoughts about your own death. Specifically, the topic is how to listen to someone else who's in that scary place. But it ends up being more of a wide-ranging discussion about the way our culture responds to thoughts about death and what that means for us as people as well as professionals. So first, just a heads up really, if that's not a subject you feel like diving into today, please feel free to go and do something else. Get some fresh air, give the dog some unsolicited back scratches. And one other thing, I just want to signpost here before we jump in. Listening back to this, I'm struck by the way Gareth and I talk about this subject of suicide, or what Gareth calls the S-word because he hates the word suicide, for reasons you'll hear shortly. The way Gareth and I talk about this is not the way you might be used to hearing people talk about this subject publicly. As you'll hear, we kind of jump right into some of the big philosophical questions that surround this topic. Questions like, is there value in going to a place of deep existential despair? As you'll hear, Gareth and I both have personal experience of this topic as well as professional, as will many of you, I imagine. And we've also had many conversations on this topic between the two of us in private. So I think this conversation you're about to hear is best understood as part of an ongoing conversation. So anything we say here is really just our latest thinking as we grapple with one of the biggest, most complex parts of the Big Feels experience. All right. All that said, here we go. Hello and welcome back to Big Feels at Work. I feel like we're a real thing now. It's quite a lot of episodes. <laughs> Double figures, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> we're getting there. We're on, on the path. Yeah. Uh, I'm Graham Panther. I have with me my co-host, Gareth Edwards. Hello, everybody. Alrighty. Today's episode, the topic is how to really listen to someone at their most tender and when I first proposed this to you, Gareth, I had a title that was a bit more generic, something like how to really listen when someone's suicidal. And I thought your response to that was kind of interesting. You said, I'm uncomfortable about using the S word. Yes. Yeah, not my, not my favorite word. Well, and as someone, you know, given that you've written a book called The Procrastinator's Guide to Killing Yourself, it's obviously not the topic you're uncomfortable with. So I'm wondering, what was it about the S word? Oh, where do I start? In a nutshell, it, it's a it's a made up word. It's not a real word. It was coined. Oh, I'm going to get the facts wrong here. Look it up. But it was coined a couple of hundred years ago when the act of taking your own life became a moral issue. Right. So it's kind of it's kind of sounds like homicide. Yes. Yes. It's that sort of Latin sort of principle. And when they were looking for a word, and they had a couple of other words within the sort of Christian tradition that basically made it a sin. Yeah. To, to take your own life or to think. So it's got it's got that moral element. I also think it's um normally gets wrapped up in modern language around suicide prevention. Yes. And I'm not one for preventing suicidal thoughts, feelings, and behaviours. Mm. Preventable death yeah. sounds really cool to me. Yeah. But yeah, the stuff that's in there, the existential crisis that leads you to that point. We don't, I, I wouldn't say is necess- always wanting to be prevented. Sometimes you want to usher that in. Oh, I like we've gone straight to the heart of the matter. <laughs> right 
I was gonna, yeah, I was gonna get to this in a bit. That let's jump in. The, the yeah. thing that I have in my head around the phrase suicide prevention, and I, I wonder how this will will sound for listeners off the bat. So all I'll mm. say is, stay with us. <laughs> yes, yeah, I do have a tendency to sort of get to the nub of the matter pretty quick. But it's a really big nub here, and I do think so. This, you know, you say the phrase, "I'm not, I'm not on board with suicide prevention." That sounds a little bit crazy, but stay with us. And what what it means to me? So I I did a bit of training called the Alternatives to Suicide Training, which mm. is a, a model, it's a peer based model out out of um, Massachusetts in America, and it's just one of many models of kind of grassroots peer support approaches to this stuff. But I think it's a great example of how that can be quite different to the mainstream thinking. And one of the things they said on day one of the training that really struck me was, we're not in the business of suicide prevention. However, in the entire time we've been running this model in multiple states in America, we've had one death mm. in, you know, for 12 years. Um, and compare that to the stats of a mainstream clinical service for people who are, in, who are in that level of crisis. And the way they explained it is kind of what I think you're getting at, which is people will stop telling you they're thinking about death but they won't stop thinking about death yes (laughs) so if you build a system in which there are great and grave consequences for telling a mental health professional you're thinking about death Mm. you know when i say consequences i mean getting locked up getting forcibly medicated down to just the the more nuanced consequences, like suddenly everyone's treating you with kid gloves. If there are those consequences to, to being honest about what's going on in your head, you stop being honest. Oh, for sure. And, and even if you don't get the, the harsher end of the response to that, you are now seen as at risk, you know? There are algorithms and assessment forms that go, this person is now at risk. Don't attend to the, you know... Like, if we're going to be tough, tough on suicide, let's be tough on the causes of suicide, do you know what I mean? We never, we never get to the causey bit, you know? So, um, yeah. All right, so, so that's kind of, let's say that's our thesis statement, right? Yeah. Like, we need a new way to talk about this stuff. How do we get to that in, in maybe some sort of more gentle ways? And I'm thinking particularly for those many listeners we have who are in clinical roles, who are working in clinical settings where absolutely your job is to prevent suicide and that's the frame you're given. Yeah, and I think it segues really nicely into the topic of how to really listen. Yeah. So you hear the word suicide and you know, I've, I've done you know support roles and, and what have you. You hear the word suicide and you're trained to respond a certain way, which is fine. I'm not adverse to people going, oh, there might be a threat to life here. That's completely understandable and totally fine. Mm. And once you've addressed that or on the way to addressing that, you've also got to go, okay, so you mentioned that you're feeling suicidal or, or whatever. Can we now explore what's behind that? Yes. So you listen to the first bit and then you then you do the, the question that takes you beyond the sort of, yeah, the, the immediate problem. Well, this is the thing. So if we think about what tends to happen in a mainstream mental health setting, once the topic of thoughts of death comes up, 
you, as you're suggesting that we, we are trained and we are required usually by policy to go straight to a place of assessing risk. Mm. And so for me, even as a peer worker way back when working at an all peer run organization, we still had to do what they call the three questions, which is something I imagine some of our listeners will be familiar with. The three questions were a policy that essentially was designed to track on a scale of one to 10, how much of a risk this person is. Yeah. So as soon as someone brings up a, that kind of that, that deep down honest truth of I essentially, I don't know how to go on like this. We had to go to a place of, well, how likely is it that you might do something? Mm. And I get that, but as you're suggesting, that takes you away from the other conversation, which is why do you think you can't go on? What's what's driving that despair? Yeah, and I think, you know, whenever I've been in those situations where you're required to do that bit, I think I think there's a level of honesty that we can give. It's like, hey, listen, you, you just talked about wanting to kill yourself. I've got a couple of questions I need to ask, but I really want to get back to you know, the story of who you are and, and how you've got to this point. Because now it's so well known. You know, I think back in the day, like when I started suicide prevention work in sort of early 2000s, it was almost like we couldn't address it head on. Yeah. But we're now a couple of decades on and everybody knows now, you know, if you mention those things, you're going to get a certain response. So it's quite, you know, it's a bit more in the, in the public discourse that something's going to happen. So I, th- I think you can just be honest with people and say, yeah, but a couple of questions I need to ask right now to make sure you're safe. After this, I'm coming right back to yeah. where you are on your path and how you got to this point. Yeah, and that was certainly the way I used to do it. Um, almost the classic kind of blame the boss thing of, you know, I'm going to have to do this to cover my ass. Yeah. Then let's get through that and then let's have the real conversation. Mm. The story that, to, to illustrate this, the story I've, I've heard from the alt to sue, alternatives to suicide training, they were saying they'd mentioned many times to health professionals that they felt like dying and no one ever asked why. Mm. And for them, the why, I mean, the why is always complicated, right? But for them, the really clear and present why was they'd been sexually assaulted. Mm. And no one ever asked. Mm. So, no, that's a stark example. I wouldn't say it was uncommon. Exactly. You know? <laughs> um, whether or not they, the person you're you know, working with there has an answer to the question of why, I think the point is it's so easy to not really listen. It's so easy to go to a place of how do we fix... How do we keep you safe? Yeah. Uh, when perhaps what what is needed there is is something simpler. Yeah, and I think some of it depends on where that person's at, you know. So, like, you know, as you said, I wrote this book called The Procrastinator's, Procrastinator's Guide to Killing Yourself. And it's mostly about events sort of 20 years ago when I was in my mid-20s. Yeah. But I am not non-suicidal. Yeah. You know what I mean? This is still a, a very real and present part of who I am. And, you know, if you read the book, you know, you'll know, like, there's, there's, there's a part of it where I value that. If, I, if I've got to the point where I think I can't carry on with the life that I want to live, 
I now use that as mainly as a springboard to go, okay, time to recheck what is the life I want to live. How can I be closer to that? Rather than, you know, in my 20s, it was very panicky and very, you know, it felt the end of the road. Whereas for me now, it's like turning the corner of a road, you know? I think this is this is really big. Like, the, the question that I've got written down here that I think probably comes from my many conversations with you, to be honest, is what if despair isn't a problem? Definitely. Definitely. And I think part of the challenge with the suicide prevention efforts is there's no space for that. Mm. The space is all about death and not about life. And I think if we can balance that out and go, yes, you've... Because interestingly, one of the things that's coming into suicide prevention is the amount of people who don't have a diagnosable mental illness or mental disorder. Go on. Yeah, it's like this new strand. It's like, actually, not everybody would you classify as having depression or bipolar or uh, alcohol addiction or whatever else. There's people who reach the end of the road. And, and like, we know this, you know, from, like, the Wall Street crashes and all that sort of thing. A lot of what drives suicide is feeling like you can't carry on. Yeah. And that might be common in people who suffer or experience a great deal of distress in their life, but it's also common in, you know, weird circumstances. All of a sudden it's like, ah, fuck, there's no way forward. Yeah. Are you trying to say, Gareth, that wondering if you can keep on going is baked into the human condition? Oh, sure. (laughs) Absolutely. I I had an old friend and colleague say once something that really stuck with me, which was she said, you know, I have some friends who just think about suicide every day. And she said it, as if, as, it was, as if it was the most natural thing in the world. And, and what was interesting is at the time, this was in my late 20s, early 30s, at the time I was like, wow. And then now I've had some other life stuff happen to me and I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and again, so if we had a different word there, and I don't know what the word is, part of our challenge in mental health is to relanguage this. We've lived yeah. with these sort of pseudo-medical, legal, Latin terms for so long now. We, we haven't got a language and anytime you try and put something up it's always easy to dismiss but eventually it will shift so if you said oh I have a friend who thinks about the meaning of life and particularly their life every day anybody would go oh, okay you're that kind of person well <laughs> that's so true and this is where I, I think about you know so every year I do my mental health plan with the GP so I can get my cheap <laughs> therapy sessions Yeah. and there's one I always I was going to say I always fail that test I don't know what what the pass mark is, but I'm I'm always in the severely depressed range. And part of it is, some of it's just that, you know, I have some shit going on, but part of it is uh, there's a question on there, which is how often do you think that life is meaningless? <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm an armchair Buddhist. And, uh, do you want it to the nearest minute or should I give you seconds? Like what, what would yeah, happen? <laughs> exactly. Like I always think life is meaningless. And for me, that's part of my way of making sense of a world with a great deal of uncertainty which for me includes the uncertainty of my own brain yeah like i don't know i don't know day to day what my brain's going to throw at me and so yeah i think life is meaningless but that's not a bad thing some days some days it feels heavy some days it's a real light kind of so there's the rub that question is not a neutral question but it is framed in such a way particularly these assessment tools and validated and testing for reliability that that is unquestionably bad to think that life is meaningless 
Who made that rule? Can we have yeah. a vote, you know? <laughs> yeah. Let's stop validating tools and start validating despair. <laughs> um, now, I want to get to, just as a kind of, because this is, this is all sort of big, fairly big stuff, mm. and, I, and I want to bring it down to some, some specific examples, which are going to look different for each of our listeners because they're all in different settings. But I am, I'd love you to share something you shared with me recently, which is a, a story of how one particular person out there doing it tough came to find you in your capacity as, how, how would you describe it, sort of life coach? Yeah, it's called coaching now, yeah. Yeah, I've settled on that. It's, it's a variety of things, but coaching is the easiest lens to look at it. Yeah, so tell us that story. Okay, so if you're sitting comfortably, I will begin. <laughs> so I got, a, I got an email through the website, and... I can't remember the exact words, but it's a very short email that just said, I've no idea if you can help me, but um, can we give it a go? Yeah. Which is quite common. That's, that's often how people, because I'm not, like we just said, we I haven't even got an umbrella term for it. So people aren't like, is this therapy or counselling or coaching or what, you know? So I think that's that's usually how I start when I call you. I have no <laughs> idea if you can help me. <laughs> and to be fair, I have no idea either. Yeah, and I think that's 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 the place that I come from. It's like, well, let's give it a try, and and if it mm. if I can be helpful, then sure, let's carry on. Whereas I think normally in our world, and you speak to this really eloquently, you know, normally every doorway is billed as the answer is here. Can you yeah. enter your pin number and, and walk through the door? You know, and I'm not that. So anyway, I got this email saying, you know, don't know if you can help, but can we have a chat? I'm not sure. Yeah, let's let's tee up a chat. And what this person told me is that the week before, so the week that they actually emailed me, um, they'd essentially woken up wanting to end their life. You know, and this person is not in, on paper, bad situation. Like, this is, you know, somebody with a good job, good house, family, all the things that you'd normally say, oh, you know, this, this, this person should be reasonably okay. Hmm. And um, so, yeah, woken up, feeling like couldn't carry on. And was literally Googling suicide. Yeah. That was their term of choice. And they stumbled across the podcast series called No Feeling Is Final, which uh, many listeners may know is Graham and Honours podcast about particularly Honours experiences, but, you know, others as well. And this person listened to that podcast and drew great comfort from it. Mm. And the comfort they drew was the... It was, it was the humour with which some really dark parts of the journey were conveyed. Yeah, so that's uh, Honor and I made a six-part memoir series podcast with the ABC a couple of years back about Honor's experience of what she calls Doomtown, which is, yeah, being in this place of, of not knowing if you can stay alive. So she listened to that. Yeah, and one of them, I'll just, I'll just call it out because it really made me smile just hearing it again was the, there's, there's parts of the, the episode where, I don't know what you call it, like the voice within Honor's head speaks. Yeah, the mean voice. Yeah, the mean yeah. voice, yeah. See, they're, they're in, I've only ever heard of that discussed negatively. But you guys managed to make that light and accessible yeah. to people yeah. for whom that is a daily reality. Yes, so, yeah. No point being mean about that because it's already mean, you know what I mean? Yeah. So part. Yeah. So so if you haven't listened to it, we've gotten a whole bunch of like international accolades and reviews and good stuff from 
from all around the world for that show and, and, and one of the ones that stuck with me was something like it's the it's the most fun show you'll ever listen to about suicide <laughs> <laughs> but anyway so she listened to that she felt connected to that i'm assuming she listened to the last episode which features you yeah so she got to the last episode uh, in which i'm in there um talking with with honor um from a similar sort of coaching session and really felt like it was just such a different perspective on things. And and so when we finally talked, she said, basically, my choices are I go and pay $500 for a private psychiatrist who's going to nod his head for 40 minutes and then change my medication, or I thought I'd give you a call yeah. and see what we could do. So what is it that you can offer there? It's really interesting, particularly the first session, it is, it is yeah. absolute listening. Yeah. Really, really listening. And, you know, I have had training and I've got experience of doing this in, in professional roles. I'm sure many of the listeners have as well. I guess the privilege that I've got is that I'm listening without a context of, you know, restrictive policy or organisational norms. The thing that she said that you told me that really jumped out to me was, I just need to talk to someone who won't freak out. Yeah, that was it, yeah. Yeah, she said, so I, she said, I do talk to people um, about wanting to kill myself, but I need to talk to someone who won't freak out. And for me now, this has become entirely normal. So the way we started our episode at the top, you know, I've, I've, I'm so comfortable talking about this topic now that I just go straight to it. And I think mm. that's what she appreciated. It's like, I could say these things and you're not instantly going to be worried about me. You're not going to pity me. You're not going to be sad for me. Mostly what I am is curious. I'm like, wow, okay. Tell me. Yeah. I've been thinking about, because you mentioned the kind of, I don't know quite the word you use, but it's sort of to me, it's like the luxury of that when you're kind of working a little bit outside the usual system. Mm. And I think about that in, in my personal friendships. So I have, for whatever reason, quite a few of my friends uh, go to that dark place. Mm. And it might just be that it might be the type of friends I have or it might just be the fact that I'm the person they tell. Um, mm. But I, in particular, part of what No Feeling is Final, that, that ABC show is about is, uh, it's about Honor's experience, but also my experience supporting her as a partner through, mm through those those really um, scary times. And part of what I learned from that experience, of a, probably about a year and a half on and off of really genuinely being scared she wouldn't survive, part of what I had to learn was that I had no fucking control over it. And I think that's easier to learn in some ways in a personal relationship i mean it's it's more it's more scary because it's like literally <laughs> the person you love most yeah. in the world but it's also like it's allowed and even encouraged to finally get to that place where you can let go and go well i don't fucking have the control here whereas in the mental health system and again i've worked in professional roles you've worked in professional roles you are you are expected you are be able to control it and in particular i will say for you know to be fair to those because we have listeners who are psychiatrists we have listeners who are in those kind of the buck stops here clinical yeah. roles 
they it is you are expected to like it's on you if that person dies that's a fucking scary prospect it's not just policy and, and all of the rest of it it's like literally fuck that's but that's do you a trip do you remember what i asked you or or we talked about when you came to me you know when honor wasn't you know some really dark places and was at risk you know there was a genuine threat to life do you remember, mm. what, as, do you remember what we talked about when you were like what the fuck do i do yeah and i was like sort your shit out <laughs> and you were like what i was like sort out your freak out about suicide yeah. Because if you bring that to the conversation, all she's going to get is your projections of how scary suicide's been portrayed to you. Yes. So go inside and go, actually, I think we can sort of, and particularly in our professional roles, compartmentalise a little bit. Yeah. And say, well, I have this duty of care, which is what most mm. you know clinical professionals have, where I have to, have to establish safety. And if I can't, I have to take certain actions. And when I've had to do that, the more you can do it with honesty. Yes. You know, so I used to work helplines and it's like, listen, we've talked about this. I'm really concerned for you. And then you have to do this conversation where you're like, I'm going to pass your phone number on to the police who are going to triangulate where you are and they're going to come and visit you. Yeah. And the reason I'd be so honest in the way that I did it is because I don't want them to drop the call. Yeah, well, this is the thing. And and there is a, there is a constant trade-off that we do not name enough which is the trade-off between control and safety and you know we would say risk mitigation yeah. in, the, in the mental health speak that's one aspect the other aspect is the relationship and the trust and like i say if if there are consequences to being honest you just stop being honest so yeah so 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 the, the honest and so naming that trade-off even is kind of what you're definitely. doing definitely yeah, like, and then you can get back to listening yeah. Like once you've named the elephant in the conversation, which is like you told me something scary, now I have to do something, you know, that you might feel is is drastic or whatever, then you can get back to saying, okay, so you know, while I've still got you on the line or while while we're still talking or whatever, then you can get back to exploring what's actually going on. Because some of this, like if you think, you know, if you've never been there yourself, which I would doubt if you're listening to a podcast like this, but if you've never <laughs> been there yourself, you know, think about how much someone has to get beyond to even say things that indicate that they feel like they can't carry on. Mm. That is, there's so much moral judgment to that in our culture. Mm. There's no space to say, oh, I think I've reached the end of the road today. Yes. It's one of those days, you know? <laughs> and there's, there's a few places you can really go where you can say that without somebody instantly having a layered reaction of, A, that's scary, B, I should do something about it, and C, that's kind of the thing that we're not allowed to talk about. Yeah. So to kind of wrap this in a in as neat a bow as we can, given it's a... F- big conversation mm. i think we'll probably do some more episodes on this i think if we're thinking you know practically what can people do mm. in the different roles they're in with the different requirements and the different um levels of buck stops here-ness as we've discussed the the phrase sort your shit out or or maybe sort what what's your shit and what's their shit and i guess what i mean by that Often when we talk about risk in mental health, what we mean is worry. Mm. So 
When I say you're a risk, what I'm really saying is I'm scared and I'm worried. And I think the more we can shift to that focus, so to come back to the alternatives to suicide model, you know, when someone in their setting says, you know, I got a plan today, their answer to that is not you can't leave because you're a risk, it's I'd love you to stay because I'm scared now. That would be that would be huge. That, I mean, imagine if imagine if we could have that amount of honesty because that's what I'd say to you. Mm. If you said to me, "Oh, today is one of those days," and I'd be like, "Look, mate, I'm worried about you, and I'm worried, and I'm, I'm in a place of fear that my friend might do something." Can we talk about my fear now, <laughs> rather than your your intent? Yeah. Exactly. Well, exactly, and I. I and this is the funny thing, and this is part of why I think it's so verboten. It's because so many of us in our professional roles are taught not to be vulnerable, mm-hmm. not to share your stuff, because that supposedly takes over the conversation. And I'm here to say I'm not so sure about that. Yeah, and that's the peer thing, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're both big advocates of that peer approach to work. Mm-hmm. And, and interestingly, one of, the, one of the fascinating things, and particularly within the Australian context where I know a lot of listeners are, I, th- I think we're close to a tipping point here because every time I touch the mental health system in Australia to do some work, I get this, hey, we've all got lived experience, haven't we? And yeah. like, we have the very day you stand up and say, I have lived experience. As soon as you do that, we all have lived experience, definitely. Yeah. But it's, while, you, while you don't declare it, and I'm not, there's no pressure to declare, but there's this kind of tide shift of like, oh, actually, it's not about them, it's about us. Hmm. You know, the vast majority of us have got something that, that that would tick a box if we decided to tick it. And I think, you know, if we can move towards that and owning that, particularly in professions that traditionally, like you say, feel this weight of like, oh, I've got to have the answer and I've got to have all the control. And like, yeah, it'd, it'd be a really beautiful thing if they, they could say, I'm scared. I have these questions to ask. Anyway, now back to you. very good all right well let's wrap this one up here i think there's a lot in this one so uh good luck digesting all that (laughs) yeah no it was a biggie and i feel there's a lot more to say on the the art of really really listening well we'll come back to it now what i what i would like to do is offer the opportunity for you listeners to tell us your reactions to this um, whatever they may be, I would love to hear. Um, and you can do that by emailing hello at bigfields.club. Yeah, and trip gently. Like, I think, I think we've developed a way of talking about this reasonably lightly. And I think, mm. you know, I'm aware that listeners will be sitting in their own space attending to some pretty big topics. So, yeah, be gentle. Always the uh, the under theme of what we do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. Okay.